human innovation and behavior can actually make a difference here. What if we get it right? There's a lot of great climate scientists who ask that. So what if we get it right? What if we create more green spaces, protect more biodiversity, have better health outcomes, you know, respect cultures who have long appreciated our planet better than than the dominant cultures. Boy, that, that sounds good. And the work of doing that is actually really hopeful and exciting work. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute. And today I'm speaking with Marianne Hancock. Marianne is the CEO of Y Analytics, an organization founded to bring best-in-class insights about environmental and social impact into capital allocation decisions, improvement, and tracking. Why Analytics works in partnership with the RISE funds, which are the gold standard for social impact investing, and also with the $7 billion TPG RISE Climate Fund, one of the largest private equity funds dedicated to climate investing around the world. Previously, Marianne spent 20 years at McKinsey & Company, where she was a senior partner. Among her several leadership roles, Marianne co-founded McKinsey's K-12 education practices in the U.S. and served several poverty alleviation nonprofits, including CARE. Marianne, welcome to the podcast. I've really enjoyed our work together at the TPG's Rise Climate Fund, and I've learned a lot from you. I don't know anyone who's better able to talk about the intersection of social impact investing with analytics and measurement. You also are carefully monitoring, closely monitoring the trajectory of the legal and regulatory framework for climate investing, all of its gaps and opportunities for improvement. So I'm really looking forward to our discussion today. Now, let's start at the beginning. Marianne, your interest in helping improve people's lives begin with your family in Philadelphia. Tell us a little bit about your parents and how the examples they have set have been so formative to your career. Thank you, Hank. It has been so enjoyable to get to work together on what we're doing, and it's great to be in discussion today. As you said, I grew up in Philadelphia, and an interesting twist was that my father had been a priest and my mother had been a nun, uh, which I didn't realize was the least bit odd when I was growing up. So even though they they left the clergy and married uh, before I came along, their social justice work and their commitment to social impact was something that just pervaded our whole lives. My father's version of that was that he had founded drug rehabilitation programs for teenagers in North Philadelphia and in West Philadelphia. And, uh, and, and he loved those kids like they were his own. I mean, really loved them back to health and wholeness and, and changed, changed the course of their lives. My mother's version was that she was a teacher and she had taught in schools everywhere from inner city Philadelphia to rural North Carolina in an early integrated school that was actually bombed for the audacity of, of educating kids together. So as I reflect on the, the lessons or the influence that they had on my life and career, I, I'm often reminded of the words of one of my heroes, a man by the name of Father Greg Boyle. He founded the Homeboy Industries uh, drug rehabilitation uh, program out in, in Los Angeles. And he often says, we need to stand in awe of the burdens that people carry not in judgment of how they carry them. And we need to do all we can to lift each other's burdens. So their influence, my parents' influence to me was really both a mindset and a call to action. Amazing. And way back 
in the early days of when I was beginning my career, and I was working on domestic policy issues in the White House. And we were doing some work on education and looking at vouchers and how they might be structured. There was, you know, the, the parochial schools, the Catholic schools in Philadelphia were the model. And there was a John Cardinal Kroll, the mastermind of this. And so I spent a day visiting some of the schools. And of course, their secret was they had nuns teaching, right? And Exactly. So you went to the, the University of Virginia and... And, and then you spent time at McKinsey, and then you went to Harvard Law School. Why law? What were you hoping to accomplish? Well, substantively, I was most intellectually interested in international human rights and humanitarian law. So this was the point where the Soviet Union had recently collapsed. The Truth and Reconciliation Commissions in South Africa and Rwanda were starting to uh, bear promise and hope. The International Criminal Court was was being brought together. And there was just the sense that democracy and institutions and rule of law could actually make a difference for advancing human dignity. And that was just just intellectually a a fascinating thing to study and to be part of. I'd say with law school, though, the, the bigger impact for me was really learning how to think. And by that, I mean that, I mean, and I think that's one of the best educations for any career. So you had to learn to seek out facts and counter facts, and you had to learn to marshal them into an argument uh, that was logically coherent, and you had to learn to articulate that. Um, I remember I was I had constitutional law with now Justice Elena Kagan, and I I would be thinking that I was doing really well in my argumentation. I'm going along, and then wham, she'd have backed me into a corner. Just the best Socratic teacher ever, and so I really came to love the hard work of that type of critical thinking. Well, I've watched that now. I've watched it listening to you on investment committee. And as you go through the arguments, pro and con and so on, and, and I can see that. You chose to return to McKinsey after law school. Tell us a little bit about why you went back to McKinsey and your 20-year career there, and, and then how that might have prepared you for what you're doing today. So I got to work in a set of industries at McKinsey, which at the time didn't seem to hang together at all. So these were the sort of the substantive learnings that I took from, from those couple decades. Uh, I worked in environmental services. That was the, uh, the fancy word for garbage. Um, I worked in energy. I worked in logistics. And I also got to work in K-12 public education and poverty alleviation with some of the really terrific international NGOs that are headquartered in Atlanta where I was living. And I never would run into the same people from McKinsey at a um, logistics meeting as I would at the education meeting. But they always appealed to me because I felt like these were the industries that were behind the scenes and sort of helped to make the world work. What's really fascinating, Hank, is that now when I'm under this umbrella of impact and environmental and social governance and the way the world is working now, I will be looking at a recycling garbage deal and what it can do with that recycling byproduct on one afternoon. And the next morning, I'm looking at a digital education product for elementary school students learning math. So these things substantively came together really well. I will say that just like law school, though, there's there's also a mindset thing that those years at McKinsey taught me, and that it was that um, it really shaped a sense of what corporations and the people in corporations can do uh, for the good of the world. And so, you know, I, I think often about the fact that 
so with about 128 million people go to work every day in the U.S. in the private sector. I got to meet CEOs and I got to meet frontline garbage transfer station workers. And by and large, every one of them got up in the morning and wanted to go be a decent human being. So I tend to think that, of course, there are bad actors out there, but with the right tools, the right information, the right regulatory supports and encouragement, private sector can play and will play a really big role in making our world better. So in 2018, you left McKinsey to join this very large global private equity investing firm, TPG. What led you to make that switch from consulting to private equity? It was a big switch. And as you said, a a journey over many, many years. I was most intrigued by the opportunity to help channel large amounts of capital to build companies that were addressing social challenges. Uh, That's under the RISE Fund. Um, But I think what really captivated me, what what had me at the whiteboard all weekend after the first call, drawing up thoughts and visions and plans, was the idea and the mission of bringing research into those kinds of allocation decisions. And the reason I say that is because in, in the work I had gotten to do in education and in poverty alleviation, I had seen the risk that can happen when you have an idea that's cooked up in, say, New York or Atlanta, and you're trying to apply it in Nairobi. Um, I, you know, it's not because I knew all the answers. In fact, it's because I learned how much I didn't know. I I remember working in Louisiana post-Katrina and I walked in with sort of my textbook answers and the COO of the school district said, unless you're here to talk to me and have solutions for opening up the kitchens so I can feed the kids on Monday or getting the alligators out of the pipes, come back next week. Right. And so I think I learned in many ways, the criticality of really understanding the research behind this. So the opportunity to partner and build an organization that could harness all the research that's out there in the world about what works into large-scale capital decisions, that's what captivated me. Well, I tell you, I see you making a real big difference. So let's talk now about what you're doing. In recent years, there's been a growing interest in environmental, social, and governance investing, so-called ESG. So first, explain to our listeners what these ESG criteria are, how big is ESG as a market segment, and and what's driving its growth? So ESG can be a fairly overwhelming and confusing space right now for those who are just getting into it, or even those who have spent time in it, honestly. If you boil it all down, we are in a multi-decade shift to find the negative externalities of, uh, of, of businesses and to put a price on those, directly or indirectly. Now, right now, if I flip to what does ESG investing look like, Bloomberg Intelligence says that there were about $35 trillion of ESG assets in 2020. So there's a lot of different things that fall under that huge amount of uh, assets. Most of that's about avoiding financial risk. And it's a specific kind of financial risk that would come with regulatory crackdowns on the kind of behaviors that we're beginning to realize have negative externalities. So uh, fossil fuels or guns. Most of that is about what the world is going to do to the company in terms of its financial profile, as opposed to what that company is doing to the world. Obviously, there's a little bit of a relationship there, but it's mostly that way. There's some ESG investing that then leans towards good behaviors like diversity of a board or low carbon footprint sectors. 
And then there's a small but growing space of impact investing, which is actually a little is, is different from the broader ESG space. And that's where the product or the service of the company is what actually is delivering good. So you have more collinearity there. You can both, as you sell more of the product, you both have more impact and you uh, realize more revenue. In terms of what's driving the growth, I would distinguish, Hank, between ESG investing and the ESG work that companies are doing. Uh, the ESG investing, I think, over the past few years has grown rapidly because it's an enticing idea to be able to do good and make money. Um, and that right this minute, as you and I are talking now at the beginning of 2022, is potentially going to run into some challenges as, as the oil markets and several different aspects of our markets uh, go through some ups and downs right now. In fact, Bank of America even just issued something saying that private investors are sort of taking a pause from their love affair with ESG investing. So there's a bit of a, a I think the investing has grown rapidly, but it is probably in for a bit of a bumpy ride. I would distinguish that from the ESG work that companies are doing, which has grown enormously and you see it all the time, I think, in all of your relationships. That's much more fundamental. There, I think consumers and employees are saying the social license to operate as a company requires you to actually care for your employees, take care of the environmental footprint that you have, and, and, and create products that certainly do no harm and actually advance where we are. So I think that's a much more fundamental shift. And as you said, impact investing where the RISE funds or other impact funds are looking to make an investment to get a full return, but then measure the social impact. That's becoming more prevalent, but it has attracted a fair share of detractors. Let's address some of those criticisms head on. What do you say to those who say ESG is a sham, rife with unreliable data and greenwashing? So I'd say two or three things. I'm going to talk for a minute here about broad ESG investing, not, not specifically impact investing, but broad ESG investing. Unfortunately, some portion of it is probably a sham and there's some data manipulation and greenwashing. I think much a greater portion of it is that there's actually lack of clarity around what the ESG premise is. Um, there's lack of scientific or social knowledge to, to sniff out things that are too good to be true. And there's just some real data challenges. So I, I, I was looking at one pool of assets and we had three very credible, um, high quality providers look at the same pool and they came out with radically different estimates of the carbon footprint. Uh, so there are data challenges for sure. And I think the premise issue is hard. Um, most ESG funds really anchor around very large scale tech companies. Uh, and many of those, as you know, Hank, are doing really good things on the ESG front but their products and services are not necessarily climate solutions. So if you broadly think that ESG is about, you know, saving the planet from the climate crisis, then your, your Google stock or your Microsoft stock is not necessarily gonna do that. And so I think um, one aspect of this is that there's a real disconnect about what people think the premise of the ESG uh, funds are. I, I think a second critique uh, or, or what opens this space to critique is that there's a, an attempt to be very binary, to say a company is good or bad. Well, companies are complicated and so they can be very good in one aspect of ESG and poor in another. And, and so I think a better frame is what's the improvement that's going on. And then the last thing I would just say is that a company actually could be making great progress 
and it still could be a massive distance from where we need to be. They could be really improving the diversity of their workforce or their board, and that's not gonna cure systemic racism or racial wealth gaps, or they could be making big and serious reductions on their carbon footprint, and that's nowhere near gonna get us to net zero. So there is that gap, and it, it unfortunately is sort of an over-promise situation that lends to you know good critique. You see it, there are also some charlatans out there. Right. there there's just no, no doubt about it. But let's now talk about the TPG Rise Climate Fund. And so what motivates you about working to mitigate the monumental risk that climate change poses to the world? But Marianne, even before then, you might explain uh, the role of why analytics at the TPG Rise Climate Fund and what your job specifically is there. Sure. So our job there is to bring as much research and uh, data and evidence about the environmental and social impacts of a climate potential investment into that decision-making process. So what is the uh, carbon footprint? How much carbon are they likely to help avert or remove uh, through their solutions or their products? What are the other aspects of their, their footprint and their social impact that, that need to be considered? And we do that on a systematic basis so that we can think about that impact return on the invested capital. So that's the core of what we do. And we partner with the people who are making those capital allocation decisions that they can have a really robust understanding of the impact of that company. And that was one of the things that really attracted me to become so involved with the TPG Rise Climate Fund, because we're doing two things. You're investing capital, and looking to get a full private equity return there, because if it's not profitable, we're not going to pave the way for more capital to come. And at the same time, you're you're looking at the social impact and then measuring it and reporting on that social impact, that carbon reduction, you know, carbon emissions avoided, right along with the return of capital. But now let's go to the to the question I've asked you. What motivates you about working to mitigate this huge risk that climate change poses to the world? So, Hank, I'm a little bit of a late bloomer to climate action. And I, I got it intellectually. That wasn't the issue. I think I worked on my first carbon abatement cost curve about 20 some years ago. But several years ago, what really grabbed me was when I began to grasp the human toll of the climate crisis. And uh, so just to bring that to life a little bit, and I know you know this well, CARE, uh, the international NGO that works all around the world in humanitarian crises, they report every year on the 10 most underreported humanitarian crises. This year, six of the 10 were climate attributable. You know, if we look at things like the Syrian crisis, there are certainly many, many sources of reason for that crisis, but one of them for sure has to do with the displacement of drought stricken farmers into, into, into cities. You know, you look at the particulate matter from emissions, and now we start to know what the health effects of that are on, on children and their, their, um, the way it, it challenges them and, and stymies their ability to learn in education settings. So the ravages of this climate crisis, we all are becoming or are aware of the fact that they're wreaked on those who have done the very least. So at one level, what seized me was that the magnitude of the suffering and the fundamental injustice of this are just mind boggling. I'd also say though, that the flip side 
is equally compelling on the other side. And by that, by the other side, I mean, human innovation and behavior can actually make a difference here. And um, what if we, you know, what if we get it right? Uh, uh, there's a lot of great climate scientists who ask that. So what if we get it right? What if we create more green spaces, protect more biodiversity, uh, have better health outcomes, you know, respect cultures who have long appreciated our planet better than, than, than the dominant cultures. Boy, that, that sounds good. And the work of doing that is actually really hopeful and exciting work. So I think it's the, the two pieces together that have really uh, motivated me. Yeah, the other side of this huge problem is a big opportunity. Describe the global policy and regulatory environment we're in with regards to climate change. How much progress has been made in the last five years? And what are the big gaps and problems that need to be addressed in the years ahead? Well, as you know, we, we have to start when we think about the past few years with the Paris Agreement and the fact that it, it really did dramatically change the discussion in the world at large about climate. And for the first time, we had commitments to reduce, to reach a planetary state, you know, between one and a half to two and two degrees warming. And, and the math of it all, I think, seized our attention, broadly speaking. Um, you know, it's a staggering magnitude of both the danger and the needed transformation. Then we had COVID hit. We saw what a dramatic reduction could be achieved. I think we had about a 6% decrease in, um, in emissions in 2020. And that, though, was not even enough to achieve what needs to happen annually for the planet. You know, it, it wreaked horrific havoc on our economies and, and people. I think the magnitude um, that the Paris Agreement and the current regulatory environment have help, helped us all understand is important. Unfortunately, we haven't made that much progress uh, at a planetary level. And personally, I think that the issue is we're not going to be saved by the math and accounting. I don't think it cap it's necessary, but it's completely insufficient because what we need is to captivate our imaginations and to catalyze innovation that's scientific and technological and behavioral and transitional, uh, some would say even spiritual. And, and we need to provide those scaling mechanisms at a much more rapid pace. So I would contrast the amount of energy that's going into mandates and reporting and litigation, which is all necessary, but we need so much more in terms of filling the gaps in some specific areas uh, to catalyze action. And I would just note the gaps that you're asking about, I'd say are sort of four or five big gaps. One is scaling solutions radically quickly. Uh, the second is providing transition supports for companies that need and, and, and you know, companies that need to be wound down. The third is around choke points in critical supply chains, particularly around minerals. The fourth is one we don't talk that much about, but I think is critical, which is an education of our workforce to be able to actually implement and innovate and, and build um, what we need to build here. And the last one I'd say is a big gap is adaptation. And so you probably saw the economic losses from natural disasters last year alone were 343 billion estimated. And so this is not about adaptation and don't worry about mitigation because it's too far down the road. We need it all. We need it both. But I think those four or five gaps are, are some of the biggest areas around policy we need to make big headway on. Yeah, this is, a, it's a massive, I, I think you're so right when you're talking about it just needs a different level of imagination and vision here. Because when you look at this problem, you know, there's several aspects. How do you provide the affordable electricity that 
you know, that another 3 billion people will need between now and 2050. How do you prepare for these climate shocks, weather shocks that are going to come no matter what we do based upon what's already in the atmosphere? And then how do you decarbonize a, a global economy, 80% reliant on carbon-based fuels? And that's going to take decades. And, and so what do we do? And you know, you, you looked at the positive, which is a great thing about Paris and Glasgow, but governments haven't had the vision yet to give the private sector the tools they need. So I want to talk about scaling climate solutions, and you, you sure alluded to that, will certainly require private sector capital. What should businesses and investors know about climate impact investing? So I'll just say the, the first thing about climate investing is it can be very good in investing. Um, the idea of collinearity is that you are creating the good through the solutions and the more that you sell of those, the returns are there, which is important so that we can continue to access capital to build out more solutions. Um, the second I'd say is from a strategy perspective or a focus in climate investing, I say we really need an all of the above kind of strategy. We need... Um, an omni-climate strategy. As you know, Hank, when we started out this work, we mapped it out and now track about 85 different subsectors uh, just on the mitigation side alone. Uh, they all have different time horizons. So we need a, a, a really large number of different kinds of solutions. Uh, and we can't say, no, we're not gonna do this one. We're only gonna put all the money there. And one of the good things about investing versus policy is that we don't have to necessarily trade off dollars in terms of how they're invested. Right now, dollars is not the scarcity, it's the solutions. So we can we can afford that type of omni-climate strategy. The third thing I'd say, this is about physical scaling, which is really different from uh, you know, the, the internet and digital transformation. Um, this is the kind of capital that's needed here is to build manufacturing plants, to, to build batteries, or it's to uh, lay infrastructure for uh, carbon sequestration, or it's to uh, build sales forces. So this is about growth and physical scaling, which is very different uh, from the most recent, I'd say, big economic transformation. And then the fourth and fifth, I would just say ESG matters. Just because something is green doesn't mean that it's perfect. Uh, and so getting in, don't, don't shy away from the complexity uh, that comes with these kinds of investments and these kinds of companies, but go in with eyes wide open and get in the arena and do the hard work of delivering these solutions in the best way possible. Learn, learn, learn. The science is changing every single day. So those are some of the things I think we certainly are trying to keep in the forefront of our minds, but I think is relevant for climate investing broadly. And it's, you know, just to hit hard on one thing you said, relative to the IT revolution or other revolutions we've seen, this takes massive amounts of capital. It's going to take trillions of dollars of capital. And, and so uh, big technology bets and capital bets, which, uh, again, the opportunity and the challenge. Now, you've been a real innovator uh, when, when it comes to assessing impact. Talk about your approach at why analytics to impact assessment in general and climate in particular. Because here, Marianne, is where you've really broken new ground. And I just know from all of the companies and others we talk to that they all want to learn what you're doing at Y Analytics. So we think of our the work that we do uh, as creating decision tools, help people make better decisions. And there's three big components to that those decision tools. The one is that they have to be 
deeply research-based, as we've talked a little bit about. You really do need to bring in the climate science, the economics related to the social costs of, of improvement or lack of improvement. You really need the research. Now, the good news is there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of researchers doing phenomenal work in this space. So it's about leveraging that. Second is we think about impact above and beyond the counterfactual. So what would have happened anyway? And then what's the difference that a company is making above and beyond that? The third thing is we think about as a return on investment. And that helps to keep discipline about the efficiency of the capital that's being deployed. We talk about this in terms of an impact multiple of money, right? In not dissimilar to how we think about financial returns. And in the climate space, we zero in with that same logic, those same pillars to a, a primary metric that we call carbon yield, which is an estimation of the tons of carbon dioxide equivalent emissions averted or removed per $100 invested. And we do that so that we can really focus in on the mitigation potential of a company. Now, there are lots of assumptions that go into this kind of decision tool. And it's not like you can take out a tape measure and say it's exactly this many inches or centimeters of impact. But the point is to ground those assumptions in the best research possible and to keep updating that as you're working with a company. One of the things that we've learned a lot about, Hank, as you've seen, is it's really not sufficient to take a simple sectoral approach. So if you are investing in EVs, electric vehicles, and you are gonna be selling an EV that's gonna be plugged in in New England versus Alabama, or in Norway versus India, the amount of impact you have is gonna be radically different because the underlying grids are really very different. Some are much dirtier. On the flip side, the particulate matter in India right now is enormous and causing horrendous health effects. So the, the source of the impact can vary and the amount of the impact can vary substantially depending on the context. You can't just take the sector. And similarly, some subsectors have plenty of other providers in them already. You wanna be putting your money where it makes a difference. So that's why we emphasize above and beyond what would have happened anyway or above or beyond the counterfactual. So the most important thing that we see is bringing research into the decision, a commitment to learn and learn and learn. We have soil experts, we have a nuclear physics person on our team, we have regulation people on our team. You really need to have that kind of commitment to be doing this well. So how big is your team overall? And talk a little bit about your advisory board. Sure, we have about 20 folks on our team. As I said, they come from all different walks from economics to science and such, and analysts. As our advisory board, we have people who have committed to help us stay true to telling truth about impact. So they help us to understand social dimensions of social impact, as well as access to research. So you've had in the past, President Bob Zimmer on, your, on, on, on the podcast, Anne-Marie Slaughter, Helene Gale, these are people who, and, and Judith Roden, who actually hosted the event in which impact investing was coined. These are people who have a very deep amount of experience in these spaces and really work with us on a, on a key basis. And then we get to work with researchers all the time, like Michael Greenstone of the University of Chicago and, and, and many others who are really been wonderfully willing to help us understand how to take their work, their life's work, and bring it into these kinds of capital decisions. And it makes a big, big difference. Now, let's get back to policy. What tools do governments need to give to the private sector to drive the low carbon energy transition? Well, I'll talk about a, a few, and, and maybe then we can even talk about carbon markets a little bit, Hank. You know, we talked in the list I, I was talking about a few minutes ago about scaling solutions radically quickly. 
Um, by the way, it's it's not lost on all of us, I think, that we just saw that work effectively in the creation of a vaccine, right, in terms of, of, of how that was done so rapidly. So there are mechanisms that we probably need in this case, things like guaranteed offtakes, uh, things like uh, allowances for permitting, mechanisms that allow for and encourage action while also putting safeguards and insurance mechanisms in place for potential side effects that are unknown at this time. So we need to ensure that we do not end up in a state of paralysis. We need to move rapidly. And I think government policy and tools can help that in many regards. On the transition side, we're also going to need mechanisms for wind down for stranded assets. And so we're going, that's not going to be the bulk of the economy, but there will be certainly companies that are going to end up with stranded assets and we need to work through those. The carbon markets is one you and I have spent some plenty of time on, and it's a fascinating one. And, and maybe we should just start for a second around, around carbon pricing and carbon markets in general. I think many people would, not all, but many would agree that if we had a strong price on carbon, that would certainly drive behavior. But politically, that uh, in many places is challenging. And so we have a situation where we have carbon credit markets, and they are, I think, a very important transition mechanism. And there's a couple different kinds, or there's actually multiple different kinds, but, and, but we can think of them in two broad buckets and the role that they play in a transition uh, towards a, a net zero economy. We have the compliance markets, and that's really a mechanism in many ways to encourage reduction of the existing carbon footprints. So as you well know, in an emissions trading system, the allowances are given for each company about how much they can emit. And if they under emit, they can sell those as credits. If they over emit, they have to buy the credits. And the regulators over time can reduce those um, a number of allowances which helps to drive the price. And so you have a mechanism to work with some of the heaviest emitters to bring down their carbon emissions. The other side is a set of voluntary carbon credit markets. And there the mechanism is more about funding solutions that would not have been financed anyway. And those could be nature-based, it could be industrial reductions, in emissions that would not have made economic sense. And in theory, it could even be in investments in future technologies that right now are too expensive. And that's a pretty, that's a pretty in, ingenious mechanism as well. The issue is that there's been a lot of controversy and criticism around some of these. Uh, and it might be worth just spending a minute on the sources of those as well. In my estimation, part of the issue is that we have overburdened a good mechanism with a, an almost untenable accounting type of expectation. So you and I have been using the word carbon credits. Sometimes they're referred to, particularly in the voluntary markets, as offsets. And there's a lot of burden on that word um, because what happens is that companies and corporations who buy voluntary offsets usually decide how much to buy so that it lines up with the amount that they're emitting. And then they retire those credits and they may claim that they have offset their emissions. And the issue are, are fewfold. First of all, it's insufficient from a planetary perspective to simply offset. We need to be reducing. So we can't keep things net even, we have to reduce. And so there's a lot of concern that if people say that they have offset, that they'll be let off the hook for reducing. Now, that doesn't have to be that way. And many companies are not addressing it that way, but that is part of the critique. Second part of the critique is that the time and location of emitting something today in one geography and perhaps investing in the nature solution or such in another geography, some of which may not actually 
remove carbon or, or avert the carbon um, for many years, it, there's a disconnect. And that might not matter in the grand scheme of netting out accounting, but it actually really does matter when we are facing potential tipping points as a planet. So, so right there, that's a second issue when we think about these as actual, you know, sort of accounting offsets. And then the third issue is that, um, you know, once we link it into accounting and promises, they're really hard in many cases to track at an accounting kind of level. So you have issues of additionality. Would this really have happened anyway? Uh, permanence, are the trees going to burn down? Leakage, maybe you protect these, this parcel of land, but that leads to um, deforestation on another parcel of land. Community impacts. And so what's happening now is that we're starting to see technologies and better systems start to emerge to get a better sense of quality. And I do think that there will be a flight to quality in these mechanisms. But if we step way back and we go back to the benefits here, we have mechanisms in the credit markets, that carbon credit markets that can be important tools. And I think what we need to do is fix a good but broken mechanism and, and not throw it out. Yeah, I tell you, I wanna I add something to that because we, we see governments getting together at, at Glasgow and setting targets and they're voluntary targets. And we see companies uh, with great ambition developing technologies that aren't yet commercial. And we see governments putting pressure on the companies and, and banks to decarbonize, right? See all that pressure, but government's not giving them the policy tools they need. Government's not putting a price on carbon. Government's not making, having the political will to, to make the huge investments that are gonna be required here in infrastructure, the huge investments in research. And so we're gonna hit a wall. So we've got, uh, we've got all this ambition at the corporate level that you and I see every day. And in many ways, the companies are ahead of the government right now. And so I look at these carbon credits as sort of a carbon coin, as a financing mechanism to help roll out the technologies that are needed for this transition. And, but we have an, you know, an environmentalist, I always say, will tend to eat their young, right? They, everybody can find a problem with something. You can find a problem with just about everything, but how do we, how do, how do we improve? So that's, that's why, right. to me, I so much respect what you're doing every day around why analytics and the TPG Rise Climate Fund. Now, Marianne, to conclude today, I am really interested in what advice you can share with the young listeners who are interested in pursuing a career where they want to measure their accomplishments by social impact, helping people. Mm -hmm. There's so many young people today that want to go out and make a difference and help. What advice do you give them? Sure. I do think that the generation that's that's coming into the workforce now is just an incredibly passionate and engaging and wonderful generation. The two pieces I would say are, first of all, be curious, have the best questions, not the best answers. And I think that's actually a lifelong skill, not just an age-specific age skill. The more you learn about the context or the lived experiences or the roadblocks, all of that will help you make a better impact. So- First, be curious, have the best questions, not the best answers. And then the second is engage and enable and encourage change as opposed to attacking. 
I often think that when we're tempted to fight fire with fire, let's remember that the fire department usually uses water. <laughs> yeah. And Marianne, I'm going to add a third because I want people to look at your life experience. So many young people come in and they immediately say, I'm going to go make a difference, but they don't yet have the skills or the experience. So you've got to start somewhere and you've got to learn, right? Absolutely. And, and the two things you mentioned, I, I think, are just critical. It's hard to find anyone that's really successful that doesn't have intellectual curiosity. So thank you very, very much for uh, sharing your your experience and your knowledge with us today. You've given our listeners a lot to think about. So thank you, Marianne. Thank you, Hank. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.